A while ago on Discover the Word, we had a guest join us at the table who told us the story of the time that he was on an airplane, not really wanting to interact with anyone during the flight, and so he opened his Bible on his lap, which he had found often makes people leave you alone. Well, as it turned out, the person in the seat next to him saw the Bible and asked, hey, what's that book about? (laughs) Well, so much for no interaction. And that's actually a tougher question to answer than you might think. How do you answer someone who knows basically nothing about the Bible but wants to know, hey, what's that book about? I think the conversations in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast will be a great help to you in formulating a thoughtful answer to that question. And I think you'll be surprised at how the tabernacle, the tent that signified to Israel the presence of God, contributes an important piece for providing a big picture answer to the question, hey, what's that book about? And welcome to the Discover the Word podcast, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Marty Hahn and Elisa Morgan and Bill Crowder and Daniel Ryan Day. They are the four friends who invite you to pull a chair up to the table with them as they explore the scriptures together. We found that doing this together really has been a life-changing experience for us. And of course, we keep a chair at the table saved for you so you can be part of the group as well. And right now, we're just about to begin the second part of a two-part podcast focusing on the part of the Old Testament in Exodus and Numbers that describes the tabernacle. Mart, who is leading the group in this study this time around, has called it God With Us. And so now to begin part two, we're going to review a bit and see how some of the things we discovered previously in part one will actually help us understand the big story that the Bible is telling and help us have a good answer to anyone who asks us about, hey, what's that book, the Bible, about? Have you ever known anyone who you soon discovered knew nothing about the Bible, had never read it before? Sometimes I sit at this table going, I don't know this stuff because Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up with Scripture. You didn't. I didn't even come to read the Bible, really, until I was in seminary. I remember not even knowing what certain terms meant, and I was like 25 years old. Mm -hmm. Wow. When I was uh, teaching a lot in Russia in the late 90s, training pastors and so forth, I had students who had grown up during the years of communism, and they'd never seen a Bible, never heard of Jesus. To see some of these folks for whom everything was brand new was really a remarkable experience. Was it hard? It was very hard because it kept reminding me how many assumptions I make when I'm teaching about what I think Mm -hmm. people ought to already know. It made it really hard. (laughs) Yeah, I had a similar situation. I was meeting with a guy that had just wanted to learn more about the Bible. And so we were reading passages and I would make it two words sometimes before it was like, okay, I need to explain what that means. Because we started in the New Testament. And so it's amazing how many New Testament references are to Old Testament. Right. So then you have to explain an Old Testament story for the New Testament. And, yeah. yeah. At this point in your life, Elisa, Bill, Daniel, there's probably a lot of different answers to this. But if a person like that came to you and said, I'm embarrassed, but I've never opened the Bible up. Mm-hmm. I don't have a clue what it's about. Mm-hmm. Are there any things that you might say to help that person 
I often tell them to grab a paraphrase, you know, a modern language Mm -hmm. paraphrase that might help. And, Mm -hmm. you know, then we can direct them to all kinds of great resources at our (laughs) Daily Bread, like our Daily Bread Christian Mm -hmm. University that would give you a little walkthrough and and easy language about how to read the Bible. But I think what I would encourage someone to do is to maybe get a good one volume kind of commentary that they could keep next to their Bible. So when they come on something, they don't really get or doesn't yeah. make sense, they have a place they can turn to to try and yeah. get some help. One yeah. way or the other, we've got to help the person know what the big picture is, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's the big story? That at the very minimum, we got to try to figure out where this came from and where it's going, yeah. right? Sure. Absolutely. And then the question is, so in light of where the story begins and where it ends, why is this in the middle here? The reason I wanted to talk about that is because we have begun in some earlier conversations talking about the subject of God with us in the wilderness. And really, it's a way on one hand of relating to our lives, because I think we all have found ourselves in empty places and Mm. difficult spaces. But the other side of it is that within the Old Testament, there's a tremendous amount of attention that is given to something that sounds really old and really ancient and really unrelated to our lives today. But it's the tabernacle. And it's the tabernacle in the wilderness. Okay, in a few words, what do we know about that tabernacle? It was a tent. It's a tent. Yeah. yeah. What kind of a tent? It was a big tent. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, right. An elaborate, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it had a lot of pieces and parts to it. And to me, what I always think of when I think of tabernacle, Mart, is that whenever Israel would come to a camping place where they would stop in the wilderness, they would set up the tabernacle, and then all the tribes of Israel would camp around it. Yeah. That's the center. Right. And, and it's where they met with God before there was a temple, correct? Yeah. Yes, right. So it's a portable. Yeah, it's a portable, sacred, sanctuary, mm-hmm. place of worship. It was a symbolical place, it was full of symbolism. Incredibly artistic symbolism. Artistic, yeah. And it was, well, we know that Moses, the one who gave Israel the instructions for building, where did he get the design? From God. Where? On the Mount, Mount Sinai. Yeah. And what else was happening on Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments were given. Ten Commandments were given there, along with... Code law. Code law, right? Um, Case law, showing people how to apply the Ten Commandments to the various situations of their lives. And along with that, designs were given for this tabernacle. Mart, is that word used, was it a common word or is it a unique word that was invented to describe this house? Well, it could be used of the sacred places and sanctuaries of other gods as well. So this was a sacred place, a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And as we've already seen in some of our earlier conversations, in the 25th chapter of the book of Exodus, which as we know is five chapters after 20, which is where the Ten Commandments are given, we find there that the Lord told Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. It's gold, silver, it's jewelry, things that they got from where? Do you remember where from they From Egypt. Got? From Egypt, yeah. out of what event? Well, as they were leaving Egypt after mm-hmm. the big 10 expressions of judgment, right. if you will, mm-hmm. the last one, Pharaoh says, okay, get out of here, you guys leave. And as they were leaving, it says that the Egyptian people were giving them things yeah. I remember the phrase, God said that he would make the Egyptians favorable toward them, which makes a lot of sense after all these plagues that they've experienced. Yeah, whatever you want, just get Mm -hmm. out of here. (laughs) For for 400 years, they've been slowly falling into slavery under the control, Mm -hmm. the influence, the oppression of the Pharaoh. And in a sense, they had nothing at that point. 
But when God delivered them, he heard mm. their cries and he delivered them from the Pharaoh, they came out rich. And that's almost like the wages that they didn't get when they were slaves. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's but, plunder is the word we often think of, isn't right, it? For yeah. What they would take with them. So all of that plunder, the Lord tells them that out of the treasures that the Egyptian people have given you, he says, I want you to take that into verse 8. Do you have there, Daniel? Read verses 8 and 9. And have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them in accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Okay, so Elisa, make a sanctuary for what purpose? Then make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Okay, now we're in the weeds, right? Mm -hmm. We're down in the details of the story. Now let's back way off. Okay. And let's kind of float above this and say, and where did this all begin? Where did well, this begin story, this... in the garden yeah. where God walked with the man and the woman mm-hmm. and was in the midst of them, just like God wants to be with the Israelites here. Right, mm-hmm. be among them. And then what happened? They lost the garden, didn't they? Right, well, Adam and Eve fell, so to speak. We always say they fell and broke because they disobeyed and they hid. And then yeah. God came looking for them yeah. because, again, he wanted to dwell Exactly, but them. all of their descendants them. were messed up. Mm-hmm. Then it's moving now into the story of the Exodus. We see people's unraveling, families falling apart, people killing one another. It got so bad at one point. We know in Genesis that there was this huge flood, and that's a whole other problem. Mm-hmm. But God now has seen his people fall into slavery, fall into oppression, and he has rescued a family And we know from the story earlier, too, it's a family that God has chosen for the sake of everybody. And we know that is the story of the nation of Israel. They get rescued out of Egypt miraculously with the promise that God is going to take them to a home, right? A homeland. Give them a homeland of their own. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, Mark, when the man and the woman fell and broke, as you rightly said, Elisa, it was God who came to them. Mm -hmm. And now in the children of Israel, it's God who's coming to them. That's right. In Genesis, you have this situation where God was with them walking through the garden, and then they fell, God comes to them. And then from that point until this point, God shows up here, and he shows up there, and he does something here, and he does something there. But up until this point, we don't really have that presence of God walking with them like we did in the garden. And not living among them like what's Mm -hmm. almost described here as a residence his house among the people. Mm-hmm. The amazing thing is they thought they were going direct yeah. to the promised land flowing with milk and honey. And where do they find themselves? Wilderness, wandering. In a wilderness. In a wilderness. So, okay, that's where we've come from. We're here now in the wilderness. God says, out of all the plunder that you've gotten when you escaped from Egypt, I want you to make a sanctuary for me. I want to dwell among you in this wilderness. Now, jump ahead. Where's the story going to go? Oh, wow. Priests and garments and sacrifices and all these things. Yeah. And yet where it's going to end up is not on those details, but on the big idea of God being with them. Once the tabernacle's finished, right? then God's presence comes visibly like a cloud yeah. and inhabits that place. For a while. And then they're going to lose it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's so right. So now if we jump way forward, just we buzz through the rest of the scriptures, where's the story <laughs> going to end? It ends with, in the New Testament, once again, God coming to us in the person of Jesus. And eventually he'll return yet again. Yeah, and where does that go? We end up in a new homeland. Revelation chapter 21, right? Yeah. God's going to make everything new. Yeah. And God himself is going to dwell among his people. Just the nation of Israel? No. No. It's going to be God dwelling among humanity 
at the end of time in a new heavens and a new earth. The wilderness is going to be behind and God once again is going to be with us. But in the middle, there's all these details and the conversations to come. Let's just take a look at the details, the big picture, the big idea, and make sure that we don't get lost in the weeds. I think the remaining conversations in this series will help us to see the big picture by focusing on this overriding idea that we find throughout Scripture that God is with us, past, present, and future. In a lot of ways, that's what this book is about. Well, to start this next conversation, we're going to circle back to something that was touched on at the end of part one. Remember, I asked you then to come up with a number a number of times that you had moved in your life and how many houses you'd lived in. Well, we never got a number from those in the group, and so Mart is going to press them on that now and see if they can come up with a number. Do you have any idea how many houses you've lived in over the years in the course of your life? I have a lot. Have you? Yeah, because my dad is a contractor, and he realized pretty quickly that if he built a house and then sold it in two years— if he did that enough times, he could pay for his house in cash. Yeah. And so growing up, we moved a lot. Mm. And we moved a lot just because my father moved for his business. So That's interesting. Yeah. When I started thinking about this, I said, ah, two or three, four. And I started counting up 11 houses that oh. I've lived in. I, and you've lived in the that, same basic city your whole life, eh, haven't you? In Florida for a while. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, it just surprised me when I realized how many different houses. Is there one that you kind of remember you like the most? Oh, yeah, What'd you like for about sure. What would you like about it? The house we spent the most time in growing up, we had 75 acres. <gasps> we could just explore, explore, wow. explore. So I was in the woods all the time. We had horses. We had a two-acre pond so I could fish, and I loved Jeez, that. My wow. favorite house, too. Actually, there are two houses where I had a chance as a kid to be out in the fields in the woods, mm-hmm. and the other place was close enough to water to fish. Oh. <laughs> I loved it, yeah. Nice. If you were looking for a house today, you might want something smaller. You might want something yeah. that's just really cozy and yeah. easily maintained. Easily maintained. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say my favorite house I've ever lived in is the one we're in right now because mm-hmm. yeah. it's a condo and I don't have to do lawn work or shovel snow or rake yeah. leaves or any of that. And a lot of the reason I like it the best is because of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I find intriguing, and we've been talking about it in these conversations about God with us in the wilderness and this house of symbols, the tabernacle, There was a point at which God seemed to want a house. Mm -hmm. He wanted his people to build it for him. But his house was a tent. It was a tent. (laughs) But not a tent like the tent that I sleep in when I go camping. (laughs) I mean, the description of this tent, it was pretty elaborate. Enormously elaborate. But it still had a tent-like covering. And it was like a Bedouin tent (laughs) in the the wilderness of Mm -hmm. Sinai. And I think what's so interesting about that, Mart, is that God chose the same kind of dwelling place that his people were living in. Yeah. So even in that, he was identifying with them. Right. But the question is why? Why would God want a tent among his people? Turns once to Exodus chapter 25. And again, we're just reading just a few verses that are in the middle of a tremendous amount of drama. Mm. Just the people of Israel have been rescued from bondage in Egypt. They'd been there for hundreds of years and it just got so awful and they were under such pain and turmoil and oppression that they finally started calling out to God. You know, he rescued them through this amazing event called the Exodus. And they came through, miraculously, they came through a sea on dry ground. God parted the waters. And then they find themselves 
in a wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel like the promised land. It doesn't it feel like yeah. the promised land. Mm-hmm. Exodus chapter 25. Let's just read two verses. Pull it out. At least the verses eight and nine. Okay. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. God wants them to make a home for him. After he's promised them a home, Mm. what's going on here? Do they have reason to believe in God at this point? Well, they had plenty of evidence to believe in Mm -hmm. God because of the miracles that God did to bring them out of slavery. The plagues, the actual Passover, and the parting of the Red Sea. Yeah, Yeah. so they've seen plenty of evidence. I mean, you could say that for 400 years there, they had very little reason to believe. But once those things started, sure. During those 400 years, they had stories of their patriarchs, of the families of the past. Yeah. But it seemed like they were slowly losing sense of God's presence. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, there was also this miraculous looking cloud that was walking with them already. And there was this pillar of fire at nighttime that was with them, that was miraculous. And this provision of manna, food, Mm -hmm. every day to take care of their needs. Mm -hmm. And then even at this point, Moses is up on a mountain that the Israelites are scared to touch because something miraculous, storm-like thing is happening at the top where they feel like this is not just a thunderstorm rolling across. Mm -hmm. God's there. So just in that light, they had all kinds of reasons to believe in God, the God of gods, because he had sort of crushed and he thought of the power of the gods of Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. That was the whole idea. One of the things mm-hmm. that the Exodus shows is the God who had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and his family, and now these people. He was the God of gods. And as you've indicated, Daniel, he now was like with them in this great pillar of fire by night and as a cloud by day. And he was moving them miraculously into this wilderness and then to Mount Sinai. And eventually he'll lead them for 40 years. Mm-hmm through this wilderness. Mm -hmm. But the question is, why does a God who's with them in this wilderness, why does he want a house among them? It seems to me that the people you know best are the ones you live with. Mm -hmm. That when you live with people, you come to know them in a way that you don't know anyone else. There's an intimacy, there's an understanding, either for good or for bad sometimes. But the people you know best are the people you live with. And They have been distant from God for 400 years, and so now they need to get to know him again, so he settles in with them. Yeah. And maybe, you know, one of the things my wife and I noticed is we lived in Colorado for five years, and in that time we were in a subdivision where the proximity of our neighbors, it was close. And so we had people that lived next to us where we had started to get to know their stories. We got to know them better than probably any other neighbors anywhere else. And the primary reason was because they were next door. That proximity was important for us to get to know them. Okay, so God now says, build this sanctuary for me so that I can live among them. He's going to be next door. As you've indicated before, Bill, the people are going to camp around. They're going to be in the outside, Mm -hmm. the north, east, west, south, and in the center is going to be this house of symbols, this tent, this sanctuary and tabernacle of God's presence. He's going to be next door. But what are they going to learn from him next door? I'm thinking consistently, too, about how much God seemed to give people what they ask for. Thinking about when they wanted a king, we want to have a king and be like everybody else. So God grants them Mm -hmm. a king. There is a way in which it seems like he knows their need and what they think they need. Will they be impressed 
by the tabernacle? Will they see a sense of glory that they need to grant him an ongoing role of God in their lives, the same God who brought them out of the Exodus? There's a lot of questions, aren't mm-hmm. they? Let's just back up mm-hmm. a little bit. Let's go back to the mountain. And what happened on the mountain? What kind of an experience was that for the people? Terrifying. Yeah. They were terrified because the mountain rumbled and quaked and there was lightning and they were scared to death of this God. They said, don't let God talk to us. Yeah. Well, and they kept <laughs> trying to make it some kind of a, their own representation of a mm-hmm. God. You know, yeah. they were uncomfortable with how far away Moses right. was at the top of the mountain. So they made a calf to worship. Yeah. Number one of the big 10 mm-hmm. is you shall have no other gods mm-hmm. before yeah. me, right? And they're like, you're too far away. We'll yeah. just make mm-hmm. one close up that and, looks like what we want it to look like. And so within a very short period of time, they had broken the first of 10. That wasn't a happy day. No. A lot of people died, right? Yeah. There was a plague. There are all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So at the same time that God is giving these 10 commandments that they were soon to break at great consequence to themselves, God, during this same time, is doing something else that's sort of mysterious. He's telling them, take what you got when you came out of Egypt and build me a sanctuary and do it exactly like I'm telling you mm-hmm. to make it. Mm-hmm. To go back to a previous conversation, it's almost like God coming to the man and the woman in the garden in Genesis 3. It's God being present with them on the ground in life right. and not distant and far away, but being very, very present right. for them. And he's going to begin to teach them as he already has. He's going to be providing for them their food, their water. He's going to do it miraculously. He's going to do it in a way that I believe had to be beyond them. They could not have understood what was involved now, we know that it was at the very minimum a tent and a house of sacrifice. Even the idea of God with them in the wilderness, his desire and what he was going to do to live among his people. But for them, a long time ago, God was beginning. At the same time, he was teaching them what was good and what was right and how he wanted them to live for their own sake as well as for his. His desire was to live among them in circumstances that were unraveling, that were difficult, that were terrifying, while he was teaching them to trust him, which when you think about it is what's happening today. Life still unravels, the consequences multiply exponentially, not only in time, but in our own lives. But the big story of the Bible is that the God that we are inclined to drift from, to turn our backs on, is with us, not only in the sky above, but on the ground of our own lives. And this story, as it continues to unfold, is going to show us he's doing it in a way that is good for us, even in the details and the circumstances of our own lives. Yeah, you know, when you really think about it, we do have some advantages over the ancient Israelites. Yeah, they had the pillars of cloud and fire, in that sense, God dwelling with them. But we have so much more history and perspective and the scriptures, and we have Jesus. And based on all of that, we can know that God is faithful, that he is with us, no matter what's going on in life. Well, in our next segment, we'll be discussing more about how the mystery and symbolism of the tabernacle ultimately points to Jesus. And Mart will be taking us to the New Testament book of Hebrews, where some of that mystery is explained. But first, this short break. Did you know that Discover the Word started as a radio program known as Radio Bible Class over 80 years ago? 
And since then, we've grown to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible available through audio and video and print and the internet. And we take our mission very seriously. So we'd like to extend a sincere thank you to those who have supported us financially and continue to do so, especially those who've signed up to become a Discover the Word monthly partner. Your giving truly makes a difference. And so if you'd like to make a donation to Discover the Word, or even sign up to give on a monthly basis as one of our Discover the Word partners, you can do that online on our discovertheword.org website. Just go to the site and click on the Donate tab. And now back to Mart and Elisa and Bill and Daniel and their study, God With Us. Have you ever visited a house that's advertised as a mystery house? Or have you ever heard that language before? I know that in the UP of Michigan, there's a place called the Mystery Spot. UP okay. is Upper Peninsula. Just yes, for, I'm sorry. Yes, you. the Upper Peninsula. <laughs> I'm thinking more of like the haunted house idea. Okay. okay. It's frightening. You don't know what you're getting into. You, you don't know what the you're door getting and into. Stuff jumps out at that you. That makes me think of the mystery box, right, that a lot of teachers will use as prizes for their students oh. where you have no idea what's in there, but you can stick yeah. your hand in and grab something. The reason I thought of it is because we've been talking about God with us in the wilderness, a way of telling the story of, of the tabernacle, a tent, a tent of symbols that God wanted built for his people as they were moving through the wilderness of Sinai after their miraculous rescue from Egypt. And uh, it was a place of worship, uh, a sanctuary for himself that had to be full of mystery for the people. Mm -hmm. You've tried to read through those parts of the Bible, <laughs> yeah, haven't you? Yeah. If I'm having trouble sleeping, that's a great place yeah. to go. No. <laughs> you said tried to read through. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, what do you it? run into when the details of this sanctuary are described in the Old Testament? Well, just bizarre, um, hard to pronounce words, foreign concepts that don't make much sense to me is what I run into. Yeah, tremendous amount of detail about sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and different sacrifices for different reasons and different methods for different sacrifices. And numbers of this is and that's that have to be assembled and right. you know, four gold rings and 25, you know. Yeah, and then the types of stones uh -huh. are foreign concepts to us uh -huh. as well. Right. We don't know what they are. And there's a family <laughs> of priests and there's a tremendous amount of detail about how they're to act, what they're going to be like, what the characteristics, mm. the qualifications for their priesthood. Mm. But so much of it revolves around the sacrifices. The book of Leviticus mm. is just chapter after chapter after chapter of sacrifices, and many of them are blood sacrifices. Which doesn't really land well in our generation. No. Outside of the community of faith, where still many people struggle with the idea, even though they don't voice it. Right. And not just blood sacrifices, but putting the blood on things yeah. or sprinkling it. Right. This tent, this sanctuary has furniture and there's sprinkled blood on it and there's a holy place and there's a, a most holy place. And in the most holy place, what? There's this chest and inside the chest... There's the tablets of the law. Yeah, there's man. a jar of manna. Yeah, there's there's Aaron's rod that right. budded. And on mm -hmm. top of this, there's a, what they call a mercy seat. And the high priest is allowed only to go in there and to sprinkle blood on it. And he's only allowed to do that once right. a year. <laughs> yeah. So at the very minimum, this house, this place of worship, this sanctuary that God wants built for himself, at the very minimum, it's a place of sacrifice. It's a place of mystery that you just wonder what in the world did the people of Israel think of it at that time? I'm not mm -hmm. sure I'd want to go into it. Yeah. I mean, honestly. Right. You know. What at the very minimum could they have thought of it? 
it would be easy for them to think this is how God is appeased. I mean, they've spent 400 years in Egypt. They've seen sacrifices offered to the gods of Egypt, some of them pretty nasty. And so this is how we satisfy. This is how we please. This is how we keep God okay with us. And yeah. so it would be easy for them to transfer that thinking to this system. Yeah. You know what? And is it possible, you think, that maybe God was just stooping very low to them, giving them symbols and details that they couldn't possibly have understood, except that this God, the God of gods who has delivered us from the, the bondage in Egypt, is not only above us in the clouds, not only this pillar of fire by night and cloud by day who is leading us, but he's also among us. And all of the detail must have something to do with what he understands that we don't understand. But it's like God drawing near. Mm -hmm. In other words, is God, quote, stooping low to give them what they might expect of a God? And think that they understood, mm -hmm. even though in reality they didn't really understand it. Because they probably would have expected that at some point some image of God would be erected and that would be what the sacrifices are toward. Right. Because yeah. they just came out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. We know that here, right after the passage that we've been looking at this week so far, they're going to make a God an image because right. that's what they're used to. And so I can see what you're saying. It had to have been awkward to them. Okay, we're going to make a tent. But right. in this tent, there isn't going to be an image. No. There's going to be symbols, but not an image. But there's another side to this, too, and that's that even though the most recent parts of their national memory have been in Egypt exposed to all these things, if you go back behind Egypt, you have a sacrifice that Abraham offers to begin the covenant with God. Right. You have God calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. You have expressions of sacrifice that would have given a different flavor right than to what they experienced in right. Egypt. So they would have thought they understood. They would have thought that the sacrifice is a way of appeasing this God, of somehow drawing near to him. Yeah. Now, from our point of view, looking back, did they understand it? No. Even in the days of Israel, before the family fell into bondage in Egypt, did they understand the sacrifices that they were offering up to God? No. No. And even after all the time Jesus spent with his disciples teaching them, when he went to the cross, they didn't understand no. it until after the resurrection. Yeah. Well, and the reality is that we're sitting around this table <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> still struggling yeah. to yeah. understand. We're still struggling, but at least we know, yeah. Bill, as you indicate, we know where this story was going. We know what these sacrifices were pointing forward to. Mm -hmm. Forward to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Which is something we're still thinking about that. Yeah. We're trying to figure it out. Yeah. yeah, we still to this day think about Jesus dying and that being somehow related to covering our sins, it's very mysterious. Look once at the New Testament book of Hebrews, because in the book of Hebrews, the author is attempting to explain to a nation of people who understood what the tabernacle was all about, because they knew that it was going to move forward into the temple. They knew that the sacrifice was all a part of their culture of sacrifice. But following the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus— in Hebrews chapter 8, the author is actually trying to bring together their history with what had happened in Jesus. At least if you have there, just read uh, verses 1 through 5 sure. of chapter 8. Okay. 
Now, the main point of what you're saying is this. Let's just stop there. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> isn't it good to finally yeah. get the main point? <laughs> right. We've been wandering with them in the wilderness, okay? We've been saying they couldn't possibly have understood yeah. what they were doing, what God was asking them. But now we're at a point where we can begin to put it together. Read that again, Okay, Elisa. get up on the edge of your chair. Here it comes. <laughs> now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were here on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. Now, very carefully read verse 5. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned that when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, we've been making a lot of the fact that they couldn't possibly have understood the symbolism of the tabernacle and what sacrifice was all about, even in the history of their own family. We now know that it came together in Jesus. But even at this point, there's mystery, isn't there? Mm -hmm. What is the mystery that you see in those statements? Well, he's talking about high priests and he's talking about stuff that's going on in heaven. Yeah. And the stuff that's going on in heaven is always going to be a mystery to us because we're literally landlocked. We're tied to the earth. Right. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that what we saw prefigured in the tabernacle that became fulfilled in Jesus is actually giving us an understanding of something that is in the heavens that has not yet fully been explained to us. This reminds me of Paul saying, now I see through a glass darkly, yeah. mm -hmm. then face to face. Jesus has opened our understanding right. with the Holy Spirit, but we're still hamstrung. And what we do have, what he has opened to us, is that the God who is being worshipped, who is leading his people through the wilderness, and that the God who is continuing to lead us and to meet us in the wilderness of our own lives, is a God who is willing to sacrifice himself. He was an unselfish God who is willing to bear the full weight and brunt of our sins to show us how much he loved us and how much he wanted to forgive us and to live with us and to bring us ultimately to his own Father, to our Father, and to his Father's house. Where the mystery will be ultimately completely revealed. Yeah. How many of us have been to the Grand Canyon? I've only flown over it. Flown over which it. Which is so sad. But All right. It's amazing uh, from up there. But you haven't stood on the I edge haven't. and looked over. Okay. Not, Not I, you either. No. I have. You have. Yeah. What was your experience the first time you visited the Grand Canyon? Well, you know, it's kind of like when you drive into Colorado at first and you don't see any mountains yeah. and you're like, where is this thing supposed to be? When you're going to the Grand Canyon, it's the same way. And then all of a sudden the floor opens up. Yeah. And it's mind-blowing. It's awe-inspiring. It goes on way further than you think it will. It's bigger than you imagine. You can't absorb it, can yeah. you? It's like overwhelming. It's yeah. like, mm -hmm. oh, I've seen pictures, but I've never seen it before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. How about Niagara Falls? Yeah, I just was going to say, I <laughs> felt that way when I was standing at Niagara Falls. Did you? I could not yeah. believe it. What did you feel? Ah, yeah. a little scared. Yeah. Because uh, you heard stories of people falling into it or trying to walk yeah. across it when it was frozen. 
It's scary. All of it's that water power. rushing over mm-hmm. and falling so far. You feel the rumble, mm-hmm. almost feel the rumble. <laughs> Spray the on your face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I felt that way when I saw Niagara Falls. And then a few years ago, I was in Brazil ah. and visited Iguazu Falls. And I just remember standing there just thinking, this is the most unbelievable yeah. thing I've ever seen in my life. We've been talking about God with us in the wilderness as a way of considering the significance of the tabernacle, a a tent of symbols that God asked the people to set up in the wilderness to represent his presence with them. It makes me wonder what the people felt when they saw it, Hmm. what they felt when they saw it on top of Sinai. I mean, that was a moment, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. When they saw the glory of God on the top Mm -hmm. of this mountain, they were camped below in the valley and they must have looked up. They saw this burning and they saw their leader, Moses, being called up into that burning, smoke-filled top of the mountain. It must have been something that they couldn't comprehend. Mm-hmm. It must have been frightening. Mm-hmm. Something like the Grand Canyon. Niagara Falls. Right. There's a power in it, a power and an awe and something you've never seen before. So it's a first-time majesty kind of. Yeah. But I think it's also something that is so beyond our ability to control. Yeah. It's just so much more than we are. Yeah. yeah, we're reminded, wow, I'm small. Exactly. And if I was caught up in that or if I fell into the Grand Canyon or whatever, I mean, I'm done. I'm not going to swim the other direction at the top of Niagara Falls. No. I'm going down. That's no, right. I'm that small. Mm-hmm. There's something fear-producing in it. That's right. I think you might feel that way just in the ocean or at the ocean mm-hmm. or in a ship on the ocean. Mm-hmm. Or you might feel that way I have right. driving through a desert where it says no services for the next 100 miles. Yeah. There's this vulnerability. Right. One of the things that it makes me wonder is when the tabernacle, this tent that God told Moses to have his people make, when they set it up, it was right as we've said before, it was set up right in the middle of the tribes of Israel. They camped around it. But on the day it was set up, something happened something of that glory showed up right in camp. Mm -hmm. And it makes you wonder, what did they think when that happened? Look with me once at Exodus chapter 40. And there's a description of the glory of the Lord when Moses sets up the tabernacle, when he pulls all the preparations, all the furniture, all the coverings, they set it up. Let's look at what happens. At least we begin reading verse 33 and Bill pick it up at 34 and 35. Okay. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle... The Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. Okay, now let's just step into this. First of all, it's describing the glory of the Lord filling this tent, this house of symbols. From a a physical standpoint, from a sensory standpoint, what did it look like, do you think? Fog, maybe? Like a cloud It was a cloud, okay. I'm just really struck with all this. The writer tells us the glory of the Lord. What does that mean? See, that's the question. 
what they might have seen was, as Daniel indicated, a cloud, mm -hmm. like a fog. Mm -hmm. If it looks like a fog, or it looks like a bright light overhead, mm -hmm. or a fire at night in the sky, what does that represent? What is the glory of the Lord? Mm -hmm. People of faith have talked about the glory of God for a long time. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the different perceptions we have of the glory of the Lord, the glory of God? Mm. What does it represent? I've heard it said that it represents his attributes, the completeness of his yeah. attributes. It's all of that wound together. Yeah. I've heard I that. think about uh, prophesying that we will all be saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty when yeah. we are before him and his glory is what we are experiencing. Yeah. yeah. Think about it related to like athletes. Their glory is the accomplishments that they've mm -hmm. had. And so mm -hmm. God's glory includes an aspect of all that he's accomplished and done, the creation of the world, the people that he handmade, the people he loves, what he's already accomplished yeah. in them. And in that sense, it would all be to his glory, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is a phrase that we often use. We talk about events in our lives or things that happen, and we say, well, that's to the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I hear somebody say that, I wish that they would use more tactile language because we use terms like holy and sanctify and glory. Right. Yeah. Most of us don't even know what we're talking about. We just know it sounds like it ought to be said in church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But when somebody says, I just want to glorify God, well, what's that mean? Well, maybe it just means I want to honor him. Yeah. What I think is interesting is we're not the first ones to ask what is the glory of the Lord. Moses himself, prior to <laughs> setting up the tabernacle, <laughs> turn with me back to chapter 33. Exodus, we're in the same book. There's a section here that I think is really important of a conversation that occurred between Moses and the Lord. Let's begin in verse 12. Exodus 33, 12. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And God said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Hmm. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But... He said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, There's a place near me where you may go and stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Okay, a little bit fearful, but my face must not be seen. And there was a thought that if you saw God's face, you would die. Mm -hmm. Now, from this passage, what is the glory of the Lord? Goodness. Where do you get that, Bill? Because he says, show me your glory. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Mm -hmm. My goodness. And then he talks about his mercy and his compassion or his graciousness. Yes. And we mentioned the fearful side. 
but it's God that puts him in the cleft of the rock. Mm-hmm. I think it's the first time I've noticed right. that. It wasn't, hey, go hide in that rock no. and mm-hmm. I'll tell you when to turn around. Mm-hmm. So go stand on the rock. And when it comes to the part that you can't see, mm-hmm. I'll protect you and yeah. hide you. So in reality, from what God himself is saying to Moses, the glory of the Lord is not just the physical expression of his goodness. It's not a cloud. It's not simply his right to do anything he wants to his own pleasure. Mm-hmm. The glory of the Lord, the glory of God is his goodness beyond anything we could imagine. But the hint that we get of that goodness eventually shows up in the same story, doesn't it? Shows up in a way that expresses God's goodness in the most unselfish of ways, in the most merciful ways, in the most compassionate of ways, when he literally shows his willingness to die for us, to bring us to himself. Yeah, even there in the wilderness, so long before Jesus was born, we can see now that everything God did was pointing to Jesus. And now that Jesus has lived and died and risen again, we have an even clearer understanding of God with us and can look forward to his triumphant return. Well, Mart, Elisa, Bill, and Daniel will bring this study to an encouraging conclusion by showing us how the story of the Bible ends with God with us in an amazing way. It's coming up right after this word about what they'll be talking about in our next podcast. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, Elisa Morgan leads the group in a series of conversations about six who made a difference. Do our choices really make a difference? Yes, our choices stacked one upon another like dominoes in a row influence the events in our lives, in the lives of others, and in our world. In 32 verses in the book of Exodus, we're introduced to six people, one man and five women, who made a difference simply by investing themselves in the situation before them. One made evil choices with disastrous results. And yet even there, God brought about ultimate good. Five others made good choices, one stacked upon another, creating a powerful legacy of influence. Join us as we look at six who made a difference on the next Discover the Word. And now the conclusion of this series called God With Us. I know you've seen a palace or palaces in uh, pictures. Have you ever visited a palace? Yes. Versailles just about blew me away. I mean, it is... In Paris? In Paris. It's Mm -hmm. crazy gorgeous. It's beyond words. Yeah. There's so many different rooms. One of them is a mirrored room. So it gives you this reflection of everything. And so the room seems to go on forever. Plus, it is filled with chandeliers, which Mm. also catch the reflection of everything. Plus there's windows all along. It's just crazy. And so it feels like it goes on in its dimensions, but it's also incredibly opulent Uh and beautiful in that way. And that's just a room. I mean, that's inside the building, which is on this estate that goes on forever. You go out the doors and it's, you know, down 9 million steps to this lawn that goes down 9 million steps to this moat that goes on for all these. And it's gorgeous. And it's very... um, I guess intimidating, and you feel very small next to it. And that's the question. Is it just the wealth that's exorbitant, or is it also what the wealth says about the power Mm -hmm. and the authority? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely the power and authority. So I live near a palace, not in it, 
near an American it. Palace. <laughs> the American <laughs> Palace of the Vanderbilt Estate and the Biltmore House, which is, I think, the biggest private house in America. And George Vanderbilt, big into the railroads. So he actually rerouted the railroad to the property to build the house. So it was very much a statement of power and influence and come and look at who you're dealing with. Mm. So the point of an estate that grand that, that grand is what to illustrate the power and the yeah. authority mm-hmm. of the owner yeah i think it's a statement piece mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. different people make statements different ways some people do it through mm-hmm. luxury cars yeah. some people do it through designer clothing jewelry some, or, jewelry mm-hmm. some people do it through estates they make a statement about who they are and what they've achieved and a great example of that is in a lot of these palaces and estates the library is over the top. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I both know that nobody <laughs> that lived in there was able to read all those books. But why would they build a library mm-hmm. that size and have all those books? Because it communicates to anybody that walks into that room, wow, this person must be smart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's probably that idea then, too, that leads many to believe that their God deserves yeah. some kind of a cathedral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are stories, for instance, in England, there are cathedrals all over England. There's stories about the spires being built Mm -hmm. to be taller than anyone else's spires because we want to point to God better than anyone else Mm -hmm. does. And we want to make a statement that our devotion to God is better than anyone. I mean, there's a lot of those kinds of stories that you get surrounding cathedrals. And really, it's supposed to be then to the glory of God, right? Right. And if you've ever walked into a cathedral like that, you know, instead of just being awed by the opulence, really, you're to be awed by the God that is worshiping. Right. Mm -hmm. Which makes us wonder, then, what was God doing when he asked the nation of Israel through Moses to build a sanctuary for him? a place in which he could live among his people. And we know it as the tabernacle. And we know it as a place that it it apparently looked like a Bedouin tent, right? Mm -hmm. And that Bedouin-looking tent actually was with the people of Israel. It was a mark of their worship of God for not only 40 years in the wilderness, but then for about 400 years, even after they came into the Promised Land, until the time of David and Solomon. And I want to pick up the story, their history at this point, Turn once to Second Samuel chapter 7, and I'd like us to read together verses 1 through 7. David has built a palace for himself, and he's feeling mm-hmm. a little bit self-conscious about it <laughs> because the Lord God of Israel, from their point of view, is still living in a tent. Yeah. Elisa, would you begin reading sure. verse 1 of chapter 7? Okay, Second Samuel. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, He said to Nathan, the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? What's happening here? (laughs) I can relate to David. He's feeling guilty. He's got a gorgeous palace, and he feels Mm -hmm. like God ought to have one too. Yeah. 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 
A cathedral. A cathedral, <laughs> yeah. exactly, with the tallest spires in the That's world. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you appreciate David's heart? I do. I think, you know, it's often what we do when we go to God is we want to give him what we think we need. Yeah. And I think also there's an element in it of God has given him rest from all the enemies around him, and David wants to celebrate that. Mm. Part of the way he celebrates that is by doing something to honor the God who has given him rest from his enemies. Yeah, Yeah, and I almost have a little bit of compassion toward David, even though we've already given him a little bit of a hard time for building his house first. But the fact is, is he's just now had rest. So he hasn't probably had time to think about anything else other than survival, other than getting established in his position as king, because the transition between Saul and David wasn't exactly smooth, (laughs) you know? So there's this transition that's finally happened. There's this rest. And so there's almost this time where David's bored enough now to think about, oh man, wait, I built my house first. Yeah. So there's almost a little Mm. compassion. Okay, now we know what happens next. We know that God, as he indicates here, is he's not going to allow David to build a house. Tells David he's been a man of war. So it's going to be left to his son Solomon. So David makes all the preparations, gets the materials, gets the plans ready for his son Solomon. And Solomon ends up building the temple. Now the question I want to ask is, do you think that temple ever should have been built? At all. At all. What does it sound like when he's talking to David? It sounds like, why do you think I need this? Yeah. Have I needed it up till now? Yeah. And he's lived among his people in a tent, in a sense. So the question is, was it really God's desire to have this great temple that Solomon built that later was destroyed that Herod built? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the sense that I get from the very creation of the world with Adam and Eve is that God wanted to be with his people. So I almost wonder if whether or not the temple should be built is beside the point of what the real point is, which is that God wanted to be with them. Mm. When they were in the wilderness and they were in tents, he wanted to be in a tent. When they were in the garden, he wanted to walk around with them in the cool of the day. When they're finally in a city, sure, I guess I'll have my house now in a temple. But ultimately, the point is that he wanted to be with us. And yeah. isn't that really what Paul's talking about when the body is the tent in which God, through his Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. dwells? You know, he had a different idea that mm-hmm. he was working towards. And his people, they were now the temple yeah. of God. Yeah, and in the early church, I mean, there were no church buildings. No. It was God meeting with his people. Right. Now, we know that God eventually enabled Solomon to build the temple. Mm-hmm. We know that much of Israel's culture was Mm temple-based. We see God working within the temple system, like we see God working within the kings of Israel. Mm -hmm. Originally, was it God's desire to have kings Mm -hmm. in Israel? Yeah, people asked for a king. They asked for it. They insisted on a king. Mm -hmm. He gave them a king. Mm -hmm. David, in effect, felt like, God, you've got to have a cathedral. You've Mm got to have a -hmm. temple. Sure. God let him have it. But what happened as a result of that temple? What did that temple become to Israel? It became something that Jesus would make a whip and clear out yeah. because it had lost its mission. Because it became the pride of Israel. Yeah. People from all over the world came to Israel to see the temple. And we say, well, wasn't that good? Wasn't that right? Maybe. We know that God could work within the system, but we know ultimately that when God came in the person of his son, and we the whole story of the New Testament, that he wasn't calling attention to himself in a cathedral-like man, but it was the humility of Jesus that revealed the true character of God. God can work through kings. He can work through 
cathedrals and palaces and huge estates. But what God, I think, is revealing ultimately through the Christ as the story moves forward is that he's not a God who has to have that kind of attention given to him, at least not for his sake. If the attention is given to him, we know that his heart is for our sake and that he went so far as to sacrifice himself ultimately through the humility of his son Jesus to show that the real glory of God is found in his humility, in his self-sacrifice for us. A great series of conversations that has helped us see that in the tabernacle, in the temple, in so many ways, this theme of God with us shows up in the Bible. Our desire is for God to be with us, and that's what God wants too. From Genesis to Revelation, you see that being worked out, God with us. And so that's a promise that we can hold on to, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Marty Hahn, leading this discussion with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Discover the Word. I encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. And don't miss our next podcast, about six who made a difference. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.